And hello there, and welcome to episode 26 of The Game Pit. And we are back to our Picking Over the Bones episodes. Hey, it's Ronan here. In our Picking Over the Bones episodes, we look at four games. We choose two each, and we give a quick rules explanation, and then we chat about our thoughts on those games. And our choices this week, we've gone for two multiplayer games and two two-player games. I have chosen Helios and Pagoda. Sean, what have you chosen to discuss this week? I've gone for Dark, Darker, Darkest, and Pack of Heroes. So, just a quick note to let you know, we are going to be appearing at LUNCON 3, which is the World Science Fiction Convention being held in London in the middle of August this year. We are going to be on a couple of panels, and we're going to be around the gaming tent, specifically on the Saturday and Sunday. I think there might be some clatches you can sign up to play games with us. So, if you're going along, have a look for us around the gaming tent, have a look to see when you can sign up, and we'd love to see you. Come and say hello. We will be in Game Pit T-shirt. Sean, anything else to add before we crack on with the games? Just that, you can catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of gaming goodness and of course we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network along with the very best in gaming podcasts. So, first up for me in this episode is the 2013 release, that's Dark, Darker Darkest from Queen Games, designed by David Ausluss, and David did Panic Station and Rogue Agent, which was an Essen 2013 release itself. It plays two to five players with 120 minutes suggested playtime, and what is it? It's a survival co-op game where the players are thrown into the hellishly horrible house of Dr. Mortimer and his minions. The players, or survivors, as they're called, have to fend off the hordes of undead while trying to unlock Dr. Mortimer's laboratory and discover the cure to the zombie apocalypse that's happening around them. So in the game, we've got a modular board, some dice rolling and a time track. Just some additional info for you here. This game made nearly $200,000 on Kickstarter, but it's now using a completely revised rule set, which I'm sure we'll get to in our discussions. So how do you play it? Firstly, Dr. Mortimer's house is set up by placing tiles down. Now, there are four specific corner rooms, which are important to the player's success and will probably need to be unlocked, or at least some of these will. One of these is the laboratory that holds the cure. We also have some other randomly selected outer rooms and inner rooms the players must make sure when they're setting up the the house that all the doors are accessible nothing's too awkward etc so next the cameras are placed more on them later they're quite important and again another important thing is placed down it's locked room markers these are tokens that when you reverse them have a colored code on the reverse when the house is being constructed you will need to set up a security board. This is populated with the aforementioned color code tokens from the locked doors in a certain sequence that will match the ones found on some of the locked doors tokens on the board. Once the players have found and obtained the right tokens on the board, then they can open the door to the laboratory and 
now we are jumping way ahead. So we're just going to go back to how the game actually plays out. So each round consists of two phases, an upkeep phase and an action phase. In an upkeep phase, this is generally what you go through. You're going to go through an event resolution, which is simply just moving the event marker to the next event. The survivors are going to regroup. Now, this means if the group is split, each smaller group must act independently, meaning that more zombies are going to spawn, and it basically increases the chances of being spotted by cameras. Which brings me to a camera check. The camera tokens I mentioned earlier play their role now. If any player's miniature can be seen by the cameras, then a dice must be rolled to see if anything happens. Anything from a special creature appearance, which is basically a bigger, harder zombie with special powers, to a zombie horde, and even a fire breaking out can happen if the dice result doesn't work out in the player's favour. Next up is zombie spawn. Uh, again, a dice is rolled to see where these zombies appear, and a random zombie token is placed on the board. If players can see this token, then they flip it over and it reveals how many zombies are represented by this, this token. And last of all is zombification. One of the things that can happen to a survivor is being bitten. And each time they are, they receive a virus token. When they have two, then bad things are going to start to happen. They're going to start getting weaker. They're going to start losing skills. And eventually, if they don't stop it, they're going to become a zombie themselves. And basically, they're dead out of the game. So next up is the action phase. This is when the players are going to do stuff to hopefully help themselves. So during the action phase, the players can carry out actions by spending action points. Now, these are represented by cubes on the player card that are moved from ready to spent. The possible actions are move, search, pass or take equipment, unlock a door, extinguish a fire, use one of the corner room functions, which I'll talk about later, and also combat actions. The ones that need a little bit more explaining are search and unlock door. And I'll, as I said, I'll talk about the corner rooms again. Searching is simple. You roll a dice, determine how many items you find, and draw random cards to that number. The interest in this is the coloured symbols that are found on each card. Now, these coloured symbols match the icons on the locked door tokens that I said earlier. You need to unlock the doors in the house and eventually the laboratory. When a player is in sight of a locked door, the lock token is flipped to reveal the colour sequence that will open that door. If the players have the symbols on their cards that match the ones on the tokens, they can open that door and keep the token. And this can be possibly used later open in the laboratory. All of this is preempted by a game time tracker that ticks down. Now, if the players don't have the lab open, by the time the tracker reaches its end mark, they lose the game. Just a couple of bits before I talk about the corner room and the end game phase. Player cards have their health on them, and as they go down in health, they also lose action points. Players also have a unique ability and will have the opportunity to turn zombie kills into more skills and ability boosts. Fire plays a big part of this game. It can and probably will spread and becomes as much of a problem, if not more, than, than the zombies themselves. So lastly, as I said, the corner rooms, the laboratory, and the final showdown. The corner rooms have a special powers for players to use. 
One of them has a sprinkler control to help put fires out in the house. One of them has medical supplies. We have an antidote cabinet helping someone with these virus tokens to heal themselves. And there's also a room with additional ammo in it too. As well as these little treats, there are terminals. And this is where you go to enter the lock tokens matching the color on the security board that you've gathered in order to unlock the laboratory door and thus begin the end game phase. One player will go inside the lab, grab the cure, and the final showdown will begin. All the rooms open, more zombies enter the game, fire spreads, and one of the Mortimer family enter the game. This could be the doctor himself or his pyromaniac daughter. The players must now kill the revealed doctor or his daughter before they destroy three corner rooms. And the player with the cure must keep the cure or all is lost. If the game tracker times out on this phase again the players lose and there you have it so let's start from the very beginning shall we sean a very good place to start <laughs> should we sing <laughs> no no one needs that dark dark darkest with what you get when you buy it in the box is nigh on unplayable the original rule set doesn't work there are huge holes in the rules there are so many situations that aren't covered. It's unbelievable. And the only way that you and I have actually been able to play this is through all the hard work of a friend of ours, Steve, who managed to spend hours tracking down FAQs and revised rules and getting a certain house set up just to make the game playable. If you'd back this, if you'd bought it from the shops, would you have been happy with what you got in the box? Well, to go back even further than that, just to mention that it was actually a bit of a disaster of a Kickstarter campaign. Loads of people didn't get stuff. Loads of people didn't even get their games. And there was a lot of fingers pointing at Queen Games. So moving on from that, yeah, the rule book that the game originally came with, it just wasn't good enough, was it, Ronan? As soon as people got got the game onto the table, they didn't know how to play it. They were just finding countless problems and issues with this game does that mean this game wasn't play tested ronan did queen games not invest some time into getting this tested across all these conventions that we're lucky to have i just don't understand what went wrong with this what was really really strange and sometimes you get just get a bad rule book okay it's a rule book that doesn't cover everything but then through the process of it going out to the public and an, an author, a designer who's willing to discuss things with their customers, you get things sorted out. Now, I will give David Ausloos a lot of respect because he does at least engage with the customers. He does go on Board Game Geek. He does get involved in the discussions. This game, he has been pretty diplomatic about stuff. It must be difficult to, to find your game torn apart as much as this has been. But my criticism here is he wasn't even able to answer some of the rules questions. He was contradicting himself in different questions. And there are pages and pages and pages of this discussion about, is it this? Is it that? When do zombies react? How does fire spread? What happens when a room is burnt out? All these hundreds of questions. And there'd be different answers in different areas. You almost couldn't track of the, keep track of the answers he was given. And that really suggests there's a problem there. Now, he's you already mentioned, he designed Panic Station and Rogue Agent. A Panic Station had similar issues in that it just wasn't ready to play. 
I don't know what the issue is because this game's been around for a long time. It's supposed to be being kickstarted or published somehow for a long time. It certainly had a huge gestation period. Same as you, I'm puzzled. How can a game that flimsy with that bad of a rulebook make it to the market? And then seemingly, even when the rules are supposed to be clarified, there'd be no clarification. The strange thing for me is I, I don't know the ins and outs of producing a game. But I've always kind of assumed that the designer of the game has a massive, massive input in the rulebook of the game. Because it's basically their rules. They've designed those rules so that surely they would have a play a big part in putting this rulebook together. If you listen to Mr. Asloos or read Mr. Asloos on, on Board Game Geek, he's... He's denying all, all knowledge of this rulebook. He's saying, I did not put that rulebook together. What makes you think that I get to put the rulebooks together? So has, is there somebody at Queen who's just taken his idea of a game and his basic rules and uh, have they added something? Have they changed the rules on him? As you said, he didn't seem to know some of the answers. It's, it's all a little bit weird it's a little well, bit a bit odd queen games must have employed the same person as white goblin games did for panic station then because it's exactly the same thing happened with that design as well so uh, moving on from the actual rules themselves once you get the game on the table and someone's put the work in to work out how to play it and one of the really important things is i believe the rulebook suggested a random setup for the house and the how the house is set up especially where the cameras are is hugely important, can make massive difference to how difficult the game is. So from there, it's no, don't use a random setup. There are suggested setups out there. Go and use those, and especially use one of the easier ones in your first game because it's a really, really fragile system. One role as to whether fire breaks out early or not, or which direction it spreads in, or one decision as to which of the threats you're facing, be it zombies or getting the locks or dealing with the fire, one decision can really wildly swing how difficult the game is. You feel like, oh, back half an hour ago, if we'd done that, we'd be okay. Or if you hadn't rolled that, and obviously it's whoever's rolling the dice's fault, it's, it's not the random roll at all. And, and that's one of the issues with it, again, is it's a game system, but it's so very, very fragile. Well, yeah, <laughs> the interesting thing about the, uh, the actual setup of the house is, yeah, as you said, you you just don't do it because there's so many caveats to that setup. You can't have walls blocking doors, the cameras can't go in certain places. And I read on Board Game Geek about one guy who they did a, in his gaming group, they did a setup and basically ended up with four corner rooms and a completely open hall. Just nothing there. Just just open open with a few walls maybe blocking. And the rules of the game say that the zombies diagonal to you can't see you. So they've had they had this massive open grand hallway and the zombies diagonal couldn't see them. It's just yeah, bizarre. It's it's curious. There is a curious setup. There's that particular game we played whereby the fire broke out early due to the random roll of a dice and then there was a certain point in which we had a decision to make whether to go after the locks or go after the fire. And it kind of seemed that if we hadn't gone after the fire, because every time a room burns out, you lose a round of your time in the game, we'd have just run out of time. And it was down to one decision, I felt like, whether we got to the corner room or not in time. But when we did get to the lab, we just completely opened up on, the, on Dr. Daughter's daughter and she was dead within seconds. And it was one decision an hour before that really hinged as to whether it was an easy win 
or we completely lost. Fragile is the perfect word for it. Also, Ronan, if we didn't have our good friend Steve doing all the upkeep for us, would we have managed to keep up with it, everything? It is like a tedious admin task, all the things you have to do for each round, isn't it? I still don't understand how that board works. I know there's one little thing where I think like something should be above something else on that time tracker because you kind of have to... Sh- there's one cube to shuffle down three different things, whether I, can't, I don't know whether zombies come out or fire spreads, and then you go through five phases and you check the cameras and everyone gets to take their turn. And it just, whatever it is, the graphical design of that board blows my mind. I just cannot work out what's going on with it. After a few games of it, I am starting to get my head around how it works, but I still want Steve to run it for us. It's definitely one of those that one person knows the game and then everyone else can enjoy themselves. We have slated this game for the past five minutes. Now I've got a confession to make. I have enjoyed every single game of this I have played. Yeah, when when you fight through the... The fragility of it, the tedium of the tracker, the problems with the rules. And when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's actually quite a good game. There's a lot of good in this game. There's some very, very clever ideas going around. The unlocking of the door, the code. It kind of brings me back to the original Resident Evil games. Unlocking doors and getting codes to get into laboratories. There's definitely a game there, but... It's, it's whether you're going to spend the time investing to try and get to it. Well, one of the things it does, the most very important things, is that as a co-op, you have to work as a team. You have to make decisions as a team. And if one person runs off and breaks that group up, and then all the zombies and fire have double activations because someone's away from the main body of the group, it affects everyone. And also, kind of strangely, that wild swinginess of it of of you know decisions crucially having big effects for, for seemingly small decisions actually adds quite a lot of attention to a game that i mean you said it it is basically resident evil the board game that's what they're trying to do here and the fact that you're thinking well, you know this doesn't seem that big a decision but we all know that if we make it the wrong way around we might just lose in half an hour's time and not know that this is it it, it does add a funky sort of thematic tension to the game almost you know unintentionally do you think they've got the balance that you have to stick in a group right because there's times in the game where i felt that there was no option we kind of had to stick in the group the game was forcing us to stick in the group because the defensive roles become easier if you spread out more cameras are going to see you more things are going to activate it kind of made me feel or that possibly it was forcing us to stick together but was there enough of a sort of flip side to that when we had to make that big decision to split up is that split enough in the game or do you do you feel that you have to kind of stick together all the time from the games I've played, I tell you, we had a game where there was hardly any fire in the game at all. Um, we got to the lab, I think, just after the fire has to break out after round three. So uh, the, the splitting up wasn't that big an issue in that game because in other games, if the fire breaks out early and it double activates, you're in real big trouble. I think it's more that usually than the zombies that are an issue for the double activations because. Generally, unless you've got one of the big beasts out or monsters out, you can kind of deal with the zombie hordes. They're not so bad unless you get loads and loads and loads of them. So the fire becomes the issue. So again, the game is so variable. If if you've got an early fire and it's spread a bit, you really have to try and stay together. But the interesting thing, of course, is that when the zombies come near you, they can make you flee and they force the group to split. And I think that 
that's I think that's where it's more designed around. It's, it there doesn't seem to be too many situations where you would choose to split the group, but if someone is scared by the zombies and they start running, it causes you more problems. So it kind of again adding a bit of tension. Is does that work exactly as the designer intended? I don't know. I don't know because, like you say, it does seem to kind of limit your tactical options. You can't really go where well, us to go this way, you to go that way, but. It, it means that, that that flea thing from the zombies, it really has got an impact on the whole group. Just talking about some of the things around the fringe of the game, like the look of the game, it is a beautiful game, but it's also a very, very expensive game if you pay the full recommended retail price. I think is over in this country is something like seventy nine ninety nine. That's a lot of money for, for a board game, Ronan. I don't think the components are worth £80, put it that way. There's, I mean, that's more than the Ticket to Ride 10th Anniversary Edition or you know, lots of really amazing-looking games. It doesn't look that great. Also, I think that the game doesn't look that great when it's not in play. I think we saw it on tables laid out, and you're kind of like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't look that fantastic. But in play, it all works. It's all kind of thematic. It's got the over-the-top graphics and the sort of gothic thing to it. They, they make a bit more sense. In terms of components, am I getting eighty pounds worth of components? I I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't be that. I I wouldn't drop the money myself. And uh, the appeal of it, I think it does look good when the fire's coming up and what have you. But it's more an appeal when you know what the, what's going on in the game. I'm not sure that it looks that great to the casual observer. What do you think about it, Sean? You you're our components boy. What do you reckon to it? Oh, I'm, I'm exactly with you. I think eighty pounds was basically the stumbling block. I probably would have gone for this. I'm all about the zombie games. It had a big build up, and it, yeah, it had a had a big reputation before it even came out on Kickstarter. People were talking about this for a long time, so I probably would have gone for it. But it was just so expensive, and come even coming in now, all all of the game shops around London where we live, they've all dropped the price fairly dramatically and that doesn't always happen and in fact in some of them it very rarely happens so there must be something about this game that they've looked at and said you know what people aren't going to buy it at 80 pounds i think for you know queen games to have such a big response on kickstarter people just expect well lots of people are going to want to buy it then right okay a big kickstarter support equals big support at retail for someone like queen but as you said it's been a completely botched launch if you as I think a lot of people do, you go and read the rules before you make that purchase decision, you're going to get put off because they don't make any sense. So I can see why people are getting stuck with the stock, to be honest with you. And it's not so much looks as as I think it's the botched launch and, and the sort of, you know, the very mixed feedback the game's getting. We did mention the revision of the rules, or you did earlier. They have helped a lot. And they've helped the balance of the game a lot as well because with the original rules, I know it comes on the three difficulty settings which are dark darker darkest i'm not sure anyone played anything other than dark for their first 20 or 30 games it was really difficult they have balanced it they've made a bit easier to get the lock color combinations you need for example Uh, um some of the sort of the way that that spawns happen has made it slightly easier do you think the revision of the rules has now brought it back into being a game that's worth looking at I never saw really or read the original rules. I only read about them, so I kind of knew that there there was this rule book that just didn't make any sense and things were being pulled apart by the BGG community. Uh, I read the revised rules. Now, that's not the easiest rule book to read. 
it's it does go all over the place it, it starts off with the cameras for instance it starts off with yeah talking about how the cameras work before they've even talked about the moves of the players and the the actions that the players could make so it was a bit difficult to understand but from what i understand it is is such an improvement just a quick question back at you ronan who would ever ever play on the darkest setting <laughs> when there is a good chance that you can't win the game <laughs> people will there are people out there you know there are they'll see it as a challenge and they'll take it on and you know good luck to them because it means they're getting their money worth out of this game uh we, we struggle on dark i know that's not much of an indication but um I, I don't even know. Yeah, you could literally be playing an impossible game. But as you well know, people sometimes enjoy that and they want to show if they can break the impossible and, and be the expert. And, you know, fair play to them. One of the things I think that you you get with his designer and, and that kind of darkest thing ties in with it, with the possibility of an impossible game, is that he is a bit of a, you know an auteur and he likes to, to deal in big, broad strokes and try and do something different with his games. He's not copying or putting out just another sort of work placement game or some copy of another game. Do you think that he's got enough innovation in here to go with his, his attempted broad vision? I think, yeah, I think once you uncover it, I think there is, there's a lot in there. I do like the unlocking system. I do like the way the fire will start to spread and really make you have more than more decisions than your bog standard zombie game. Now we, we both big fans of zombie side, but we like zombie side for the simplicity of it. It's just go out, roll, kill zombies, get something and get out. This one makes you think a little bit harder with the fire breaking out do you put the fire out can you risk the fire spreading in a certain direction there's super zombies coming at you who's going to unlock the laboratory how do you tackle the the end game there's lots to think about and just the unlocking of the laboratory is an interesting concept and he has kind of gone off gone off on one really but it works but again it's just do you want to take the time to, to get to the point where you understand how it works? One of the things I, I really enjoy as well, you we, we talked about a lot of the mechanisms, the bite mechanism, where if, if you get bitten, you gradually use those special powers you can gain with your, you know, for want of a better term, experience points. I really like that. I think that feels very thematic, and that's sort of a, another gem in the game. It's like a... <laughs> I don't want to be crude, but a something encrusted in gems. There's real great bits to be found in this game. I'm not sure they're all tied together in a complete whole. Um, I think we're getting close to someone up, Sean. We are, yeah, absolutely. And just to add on before I sum up, the yeah, even the health, the way the health drops down and you start losing actions, because, of course, the more wounded you are, the less you can do. It all makes thematic sense. And for me... Every zombie game should have a chance of you turning into a zombie. That's the way it should be, because that's the way it happens in the films. And that's the way it happens in the books. And the whole sort of zombie mythos, or whatever you want to call it. People turn into zombies. And this is one of the few games that actually people do actually turn into zombies. It's pretty cool. You actually put a zombie figure where that player dies. It's pretty cool. So anyway, I'm off on one. Ronan, sum up for us. So... I feel like a lot of our time has been spent giving this game a bit of a kick in. I'm going to go over it again. I really enjoyed 
every game of this I played, even the ones that have had huge anticlimactic endings or the ones where we've got in situations where it was hopeless, there was a fantastic game of it in which I had two shots left of a sniper rifle to take out the doctor as he was on his way to the third corner room. If I didn't hit him, it was all over and I rode a double hit with my first shot, almost down to the last bullet. It was fact. I think I've been knocked backwards as well, so I was going to get killed. It was just a brilliant, brilliant gaming moment. But it was after three and a half hours of gaming, and it was all fun. But you have to be aware of what you're getting into with this game, and that's why I would find it really difficult to actually recommend it to anyone because I wouldn't want to be responsible to say, "Yeah, play it. It's going to be good fun." Because it might not be. It might be awful. It might fall apart. It might be brilliant. It might be brilliant for three hours and then fall apart. I just don't know, and you don't know, and nobody knows what you're going to get with the game. It's been tightened a little bit from the initial launch, but it still has got that vague, it's a game system, little things can hugely affect it thing going on. The other problem I think with it is that it's supposed to be a thematic game, but if you look at the theme too closely, it makes absolutely zero sense. So if you're looking for sort of a story, you have to step back and, and don't look too closely. Don't peek behind the curtain. Just accept that something's happening just because they're happening. You need almost to, to play it uh, using your actions with like an, a, a Euro game like efficiency, but accept that there's a whole heap of random in there as well. And you just don't know what you're going to get. So what do I finally think of it? I think if you're willing to accept it on those terms, you're willing to take three or four hours and say, you know, if this doesn't quite work out, it's okay. I'll write those three or four hours off and any fun I have as a bonus, then I think you'll enjoy the game. If your gaming time is limited or you want a tighter experience or you're not into big long games like that, I'd say steer clear of it. I, I cannot give it a wholehearted recommendation, but I have had fun with the game. Well, for me, I think Roland touched on one of the things I wanted to say was that it's not so much thematic, but there is a certain ambiance about the game. You do get this feeling of dread. You do get this feeling that this house is against you. Uh, you don't really know why you're in the house and you don't know why this zombie apocalypse has broken out. But, you know, you're in a bad place and you've got to try and get out with a cure. So that's cool. The game itself, I think... If, and I've said it before, you have the time or somebody who is experienced with the game and has gone through all the, as Ronan said at the beginning, the, the FAQs and the revised rule book and, and can teach you the game and run it for you, which is the important thing for me because it takes a lot of running this game. You can't just sit down and play it and everybody gets exactly how it's going to go. Somebody has to be almost like the dungeon master. They're going to have to keep this game ticking along for you because there's a lot of admin as you're going along. If you can be bothered with all that, if you like zombie games, it's quite good. It's all right. It's good. I would never buy this game even for the reduced mark of £60 or whatever they, this, most places are selling it for now. I would trade for it. I've rated it a 7 on BGG, but it just falls short of something that I would want to own and would be willing to pay for. So it's a good attempt with a lot of nice aspects to it, but just fall short of being a complete game for me and uh, that is Dark Darker Darkest
so the first game I'm going to be talking about this week is Helios. It's a 2014 release for two to four players, and it's themed around each player individually developing their land and terrain and also developing and building buildings within a city in order to score points over generally four rounds of play. Why is it called Helios? I'm going to move on from that. It's the name on the box and that name is never mentioned again, although there is a sun god in the game somewhere. So it's going to be hard for me to describe this game thematically. So I'm going to go through some of the mechanisms and maybe it'll all make sense. The designers, there's two of them. There's Martin Kellenborn. Now his only other game is Treetop Trouble, which is a kid's game which was published by Haber, the fantastic children's publisher with the yellow boxes. And the other designer is Matthias Prinz. Now he has designed lots of licensed children's games based on Shaun the Sheep and Penguins of Madagascar and lots of other licenses. So it looks like both of them have taken their first step into sort of the hobby gaming world with this. It's released in German originally by Hans im Gluck, who have done an absolute ton of German language games, Al Grande, Targets and Euphrates, Stone Age, Russian Railroads, which have been re-released in English. And it's going to be Z-Man for the English edition of this game. The English edition is not out yet, but it is coming the game is completely language independent and there's a good rules translation on Board Game Geek if you are interested in this game. So, what do you get in Helios? Well, for each player, they're going to get two player boards. One of them is their city board. And the city board is going to show several buildings and with iconography are going to show you the cost of building this building, the immediate benefit for building this building and the in-game ongoing benefit for building this building. The other board, which is sort of the main area of the board, is called the plateau board. And on there, there are lots of hexes, which are areas in which you can build types of land. There are bonus spaces on there, which when you build over, you're going to get some kind of bonus. There is a sun track. Now, you're going to get a little yellow disc, which is your sun for the game. And it is going to circulate probably around the land areas that you build. And there's a track that tells you what's the maximum moves you can make during the game. And there's also sort of an outer ring, which means the sun will always be able to move no matter where you build your land. Each round is split into two different phases. The first phase is the action phase. Now, at the beginning of each action phase, you're going to lay out three columns, and in each of those columns are going to be six action tiles. Now, the six action tiles all do exactly the same action as each other, so there's only three actions you can take, but they do come in four different colours, and we're going to discuss that colour in a sec. Now, when you start with a start player, and they have to choose one of the bottom tiles of one of the three columns, and that bottom tile is going to allow them either two take a land tile or special tile and add it to their board now the land tile comes in different terrains and all it means is they're a different color and they come with a different color cube and when you're looking to build things later on and that's going to be buildings in your city and also the characters i'm going to discuss some of them have a specific cost and specific colors of cubes so when you're building a specific type of land you're looking to basically collect the resources of that color in order to pay for some things later on there are also special tiles which if you build instead of building a land tile they're going to score you some points at the end of the game and I'll discuss those when we come to in-game scoring. The second type of action you can take if you take the bottom tile in that column is to build either a temple or in your city. Now, building a temple, it goes on your land board, your plateau, and it goes on the empty space, which means that space is not going to give you any more resources during the game. But I did mention you have got a sun, which is going to rotate, and when that sun comes adjacent to a temple, it's going to score you some points. I'll discuss that more in a minute. 
The other thing you can build are buildings in the city. Now, buildings in the city, as I said earlier, are going to have a specific resource cost, and they're also going to give you some kind of bonus. They're either going to let you move your sun further on your turn, or they're going to give you some mana stones, which we'll discuss, and they might make some actions more efficient during the game or less expensive, or somehow just help you slightly guide your strategy as you go. So, two different areas in which you can build on your two boards. And the last of the three actions you can take during the game is to rotate your sun. Now where your sun track is, and it starts on two, tells you how many spaces you can rotate your sun. It's going to move a number of hexes up to your sun track number clockwise around the lands you've built. And wherever it stops, it's going to either score you points if it's adjacent to a temple, or it's going to renew the resources on empty land tiles. So if I've built a couple of green tiles and the blue tile for example on my board and then the sun and I've used the resource from there and the sun comes around and finishes adjacent to them they're just going to refill with, with a cube of the particular colour and that's how you're going to get some kind of resources coming in every time it orbits all the way around your land tiles you're going to get a few points now each round each player is going to get four actions. So you're just going to have to choose four tiles from these columns and do one of these three actions four times. That's all you can do. And there's only four rounds in the game. However, I did mention that these tiles come in four different colours. There's red, blue, yellow, and then there's the grey, which is the wildcard one. As you take these action tiles, you lay them down under your board. And if you happen to get four in the same colour and the grey ones you can put in any of the three columns of these, you get to take a bonus action of any of those three actions. So if over the course of time, doesn't matter which action they are, if I've taken four tiles from those columns, then on that turn I get to do one more action. And that can be really handy to try and put that together because as you can hear you only really get 16 actions in a whole game. So if you can manage to get three or four bonus ones, it's going to give you a big help. That's what you do on an action phase. You build up your land, you either build temples or buildings, and you rotate your sun in order to activate what you've built. Then, after everyone's gone, you go into the character phase of the game. Now, there are eight characters available, and all eight of those characters have a cost. They possibly have a bonus they're going to give you, and then they also have an end game scoring bonus. So collecting these characters is all about scoring some more points at the end of the game. And what you do is, I did say that there are mana stones available in the game. These are red little plastic pieces you can get, either for building on certain spaces on your plateau board, or for building certain buildings in your city. Whoever's got the most mana stones is then going to be able to use those mana stones to purchase one of these characters, and we go around in order from whoever's got the most, uh, taking turns at purchasing these characters. They cost two, three, or four mana stones each. And then also in this character phase during a turn, you may spend resources to activate your character because just purchasing them isn't enough. That's not going to score you points at the end of the game. You have to activate them, and then their end game scoring bonus is going to come into play. Do it four times, and then you just do some final scoring. And Hopefully, if I just go very quickly through the final score, and it'll give you some idea of what you're hoping to do during the game. You're going to score if you've built in a bonus areas on the board, you've put land or special tiles in that area. Any special tiles you've built are going to give you points for things like empty spaces around them, or full spaces around them, or things like that. So where you put them, there's a little bit of a spatial aspect to this. City buildings, all of those that you've built are going to give you a certain amount of VP. So when you build them, it's not just for bonuses, uh, and also in game efficiency, they're going to score you some points at the end of the game. Character tiles that have been activated are going to give you VP. Any mana stones you've been able to hold over are going to give you one VP each. That's just sort of a bonus little thing. You're best off spending them. Uh, and that's it. That's how you score points in the game. So very quick, tight little game in which you're trying to 
go after a strategy and be as efficient as you can. Sean, that is a rules explanation for Helios. How about you give us some of your thoughts? Well, my first thoughts on the game surround the look of the game. But let's start on this theme. I know you touched upon it at the beginning of your explanation there. But it's kind of like, and I've I've struggled to describe this, it's like a highly themed game with no actual theme. (laughs) It's really weird. Because it's all based around the sun, and you have sun boards, and the characters in the game have night and day effects linking into the theme and the sun rotates around this board to score your points and to grow your crops or whatever you're getting from your land tiles but the actual explanation of the game or why these characters are there and the the design of the game it just doesn't tie in with this sun theme at all and as ronan said no mention of the sun at all really yes it's it looks really nice. It's got lovely components. As you say, they've bothered to do loads of artwork. They've got little touches all over that show it's really a well-crafted game. And yet the name Helios is never mentioned anywhere other than on the box. The actual sun god in it is called Achal, or something like that. And then everything's really generic. And even the names of the buildings are generic. And the names of the characters, they're just called the architect or the princess or... And it is strange, but I think some somehow the quality of the components makes you expect more theme from it. Because I'm wondering, why are the mana stones those lovely little plastic gem things? And why are the little bags got an individual character you know, stamp on them and what have you, when none of it really makes any difference? It's just, it is a completely abstract game. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's like... They've two people have gone in two different directions, and they once said, "Well, you come up with the theme, and I'm going to come up with the design, and then we'll meet in the middle for the mechanics of the game." And one's gone to like the nth degree to make sure it's a real, and it is a really pretty game. The components are all really well crafted; it's well thought out. The colours are really vibrant. It's got this sort of cartoony feel to the characters, and then, as you say, Ronan, it's just. The theme is just someone's written it on the back of a postage stamp. <laughs> just, just absolutely weird. But as I said, the the components are lovely. But Ronan, those mana stones—they just, what, what, they're, they're weird. They've got little holes in them, like they belong somewhere else. They are part of a whole range of components in here that look like they were built for another game, and then they've pulled them in and used them in this. They've gone, oh, there's, there's some nice bits of this, and there's some nice bits of that. Let's just throw them together. It's part of the whole incongruous thing you get in the package you get in this box of, what? But the mana stones are nice, and they're nice to play with, and they make good photos, so, you know, fine. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Moving on to the mechanisms in the game. This, I think, and players I've played it with, is very deceptive in appearance, because the way I've described it there, and when you tell people you take one of three actions, and that's all you can do, it appears to be really really simple when you start playing that sort of limit of options suddenly opens up Sean and when you get a little bit further in into round two and round three you realize you need to have a strategy you might not be able to plan too far ahead but you need to have a strategy to do well in this game it is not the bland simple game that appears just from a rules explanation 
No, abs- absolutely not. It, it seems, I'm just going to echo what you said, it seems very simple. And to a degree, to, if you come at it from a certain angle, it is very simple. All the decisions are very simple decisions. They're not very deep, involved decisions, but they all come together to form a real arc to the strategies involved here. Now, you start off and it's kind of prescriptive in, in terms of that the, the beginning of the game is quite mapped out. You do have to start with getting a few land tiles. But once you arc off from the that very beginning, there's so many routes to victory. We played the game ourselves on one of the times we played it, and we couldn't have gone in two more different directions. I think Ronan went for building up the temples and rotating his son. I think he managed to get his son round four, five, six times around his landmass. I managed to get my son round once, but all my, my crops were always building up and I was buying characters and I was buying things to help me and lots of buildings. And they were really two really interesting routes, Ronan. Absolutely, yeah. And that is one of the interesting things in here. In such a simple game, there are definite different routes you can go down. And as you said, each action has such implications on your next actions further down and what strategy you can follow efficiently that actually they might be simple decisions it's how they then ripple through the rest of your game that's important and it's hard to see on the first couple of plays but once you get into it a little bit you go hold on a second if i want to do this better than that person's doing that i need to think about every single move i make now because you're not looking at 20 different options it doesn't really cause ap that badly you're not sitting around saying oh what should i do what should i do what should i do you have got that limited breadth but there's a bit more depth than you think to each decision and it is absolutely true that you cannot try and do everything in the game. You can, if, in fact, time's just going to run out on you if you try and do it. If you try and build up temples and rotate your sun and build up your city and hit characters and get mana, you can't do it. It's not possible. You have to pare down what you're trying to do. Make sure that what you're going to do is going to score you some points and make sure you're trying to do that as well as you possibly can. Absolutely, and I like the way that you actually did it to me, Roland. I like the way that you can adapt what you're doing because you were going down a path and you were thinking about a certain way you wanted to go you realized that i was scoring lots of points in my end game so you adapted your play and you were able to do that in the the game allows you to do that once you're on a a certain path i know runners you can't go in multiple directions but when you're on a certain path there's there's there is there are slight sort of offshoots of that path that you can you can play with and, and try and adapt so I, I like that as well. It's, it's not You're not on this sort of linear path that you have to stick on once you choose it from the beginning. You can slightly veer, veer off that path. I think that's a really good point, yeah. I think in games as quick as this, sometimes there's two or three strategies and you set out and you're going, that's what I'm going to do, and it's who can do it most efficiently. But exactly as you say, while you do have to choose sort of a broad path to go down, you can adapt to game conditions and go, do you know what? No one's taken that. And that's going to allow me to get, you know, 10 rotations of my son or whatever, which will let me hit these temples every single turn. And, and suddenly going from, from uh, the subtleties of each strategy, I think is what I'm trying to say is that it's not just straight down a path, bang, 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 prescriptive. That's what you need to do. It's okay. Yeah. I can actually ad- adjust this slightly. I can't go off and start doing another path that i didn't do from the beginning or they may not right at the beginning but by round two or three but i can adjust what i'm doing sean i'm echoing you it's a really good point the spatial aspect 
of the game, I think, is also something that it's possible to overlook. How important it is, and it's brilliant, the way that how you build your board is massively going to impact how your game goes. Which areas of the board you leave open for the sun to come around and reactivate, whether it's going to give you certain resources back or whether it's going to light up those temples or whether you're just going to keep it very small or are you going to start going for the bonuses? You know, the direction which you build, you can try and hit all the mana stone bonus tiles which is going to allow you to get more characters for the game or you can ignore them or try and go to the field edge boundary bonus scoring ones in order just to score some points at the end there are different ways of developing that plateau Sean rather than just everyone doing the same thing yeah there are lots of little mechanisms that all come together there's the set collection that you talked about how you get your extra bonus moves there's that sort of building your own little tableau in front of you with your with your tiles and then deciding what way you want to go with that and then there's the buildings that you choose and and of course there's these end of game bonus characters that you can choose as well so there's lots of little things to think about none of them are too taxing but it just adds depth to the game when they all join together and they're kind of harmonious when they do join together none none of them take away from the others and that's what i like about this those characters i do want to talk about them they feel like a real distraction from the main game because you have to get mana stones in order to buy them and then they take away resources in order to activate them they feel expensive but you kind of feel as if you can't win without them what are they vital are they as vital as they feel sometimes when you're playing the game or when someone else has taken them you think oh that's going to score them so many points at the end of the game or do you think it's possible just to ignore them I don't think it's possible to ignore them. And I don't think they do really sort of take away from your thought process. I think they're just something else you have to consider. And I I think the game would have felt a little bit sort of thin, a a little bit on like skinny, bony, (laughs) no meat on the bones for me without having that just little extra thing to think about. The end of game scoring and this other commodity in the game with these mana stones so i i really enjoyed it i thought that that just pushed it to the point where it was a little bit more thinky than the straight easy almost childlike game oh almost childlike i'm not sure maybe a bit harsh maybe a bit harsh almost childlike but a very simple don't really think about it almost like a filler maybe but this (laughs) you're talking crazy this pushed it beyond that level and made it actually very thought-provoking for me because I had to think about that end of game. I did have to balance my building up my tableau against what do I do need some of those mana and I think I ended up going too much for the mana, which was my mistake. But I think yeah, I you know. do you like the characters, okay? So maybe that you you build your game around the characters. I think it's. I don't think they're what adds the depth. I think they're a part of what adds the depth. I think there's a lot more than that going on. I think it's... Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think yeah, oh, as I said... Sorry, mate. As I said, that they everything comes together for me in this game. They, every little part comes together. The way the sun rotates around you, you've got to think about that. The way you collect your sets, you've got to think about that. What buildings to choose, what, what they're going to give you, you've got to think about that. The, how you're going to construct your, your tableau and your player mat, you've got to think about that. And I think that all comes together to form a nice, thinky game that's enjoyable as well that's the important thing for me sean it sounds like you are ready to sum up on helios for us well i think i pretty much did there (laughs) it is a beautiful looking game the theme makes no sense but i think we can live without it because 
Everything about it is appealing. It makes you think about more than one thing. There are different routes to victory. Not the most interactive game ever, maybe, but there's so much replay value in this, and I had a lot of fun playing it, so definite hit for me. I think that I'm going to agree with you to the vast majority of what you just said. It's a quality product, really well made. It's a joy to play with. I think there is a slight barrier there when trying to get people to play or teach it because of the complete lack of theme and it's abstract and when you're trying to explain some sort of narrative in your rules explanation it's just impossible because there's no narrative there so that makes it a little bit i think i can see why it's a hard sell but it is well worth the sell the return of strategy to time to play is absolutely immense i'm not sure we even mentioned how quick it is it takes under an hour even with four players, it takes under an hour to play. Even your first game, you're not going to go much over an hour at all. And it gets quicker from there. And you, there is a lot to think about in that amount of time. It really is bang for buck. This is a fantastic little strategy slash tactical game. Really high quality product. I'm very much looking forward to see what these guys come up with next in the hobby game market. And if you're a Euro fan... I absolutely recommend giving Helios a look and a try because I think it's a great little game. So, my second and final game of this episode is A Pack of Heroes, which is a 2014 release coming from Adventureland Games. Designer is Phil Walker-Hiding, and he is the empresario of Adventureland Games. And some of these games are Archaeology and Archaeology, the card game, Dungeon Raiders, and he also worked on Small World Cursed and a game called Sushi Go. It is a two-player game. It is a 20-minute game, and it is a card game based on vintage comic books with hand management and drafting with variable powers. It's yet another Kickstarter game, and this one made a modest 38,000 from a 5,000 goal. So, how do you play it? To start with, two players choose from the eight super teams on offer, which are Liberty Legends, Elementines, the Knight of the Five Realms, Safari Squad, Freak Show 5, the Guild of Ghouls, the Data Brigade, and the Galactonauts. So you can kind of see where this game's going with the um, attempts at amusing names, shall we say. The teams are vying to become the official superhero group for Power City. And each of these teams consists of five superheroes, and they do play thematically. The set of the game involves making sure you have enough room on the table for, to form a 3x3 three three grid with spaces large enough to lay your cards. Each superhero card has the following information on it. You've got a health value, a movement value, an arrival power and a special power or powers with the damage type, what it does and what you need to activate it. In addition to the superhero cards each of the players has a hand of nine power cards there are three blue three green and three red and these are what is used to activate the hero powers for example you may need two red cards to activate one of your character attacks so you would need to wait until you have two of these red cards in hand and then play them on your turn and that that character will activate their power to start with both players will place a hero on their starting grid which is the three spaces in front of them and then the turn happens as follows. 
The first thing is movement. A player may move one hero on the board using that hero's movement points and any abilities that come into it. Then you've got the main action. The player can either bring a remaining hero into play, and it all, they always must go into one of the three starting spaces, or use the power of the hero already in play, spending the relevant power cards, as I said a bit earlier. You can unstun, because heroes can become stunned due to either going below half their hit points or due to a special action from other heroes. And finally, you draw a power card. You can draw up to three cards, but you can never have more than three cards in your hand. So any time you go above it, you must discard. And there's not a lot more to it. You are basically beating your opponents down. And the winner of the game is determined by either beating all of your opponents, heroes, by knocking them down to zero hit points with your attacks, or by occupying all three of your opponent's starting spaces in a very sort of draft stroke checkers style. So, Ronan, off your pop. So you brought this little gem round to me, Sean, and you opened the box, <laughs> and you laid the cards out for me to see. So let's start with first impressions. It looks awful. Ah, oh, that's me. I that's hate, mean. hate the artwork. Ah, oh, see now that's that's the thing I liked about the game. That's what drew me to the game. It really reminded me of those cheesy '80s comic books that we used to pop down to Calamity Comics and, and buy, Mister Rice. Okay, why do you want to be reminded of cheesy '80s comic book artwork? It's awful it is actually offensive to my eye it, they look really the characters good. aren't even in proportion the the single color backgrounds the, the that trash can one the rainbow sprinkle the unicorn in his interesting underwear it's just, what i thought it looked good and i actually oh found some of the cards genuinely funny i thought it was a, a very humorous game oh my days very to... tongue-in-cheek not supposed to be taken seriously. I just thought they did what they set out to do. It was, it was exact homage to those cheesy 80s comics we used what to What cheesy? No, no, there's no homage to something that's awful. It's an <laughs> awful replica or something that was awful to start with. Not only do I hate the looks, I hate the theme. I hate it. Anyone trying to be funny with superheroes, you have to be really, really funny or it's just rubbish. And this is just rubbish disco droid the 70s housework robot that got found and taken out of storage and refitted <laughs> her pretzel gets me every time her pretzel who worked in the second biggest pretzel factory in mainz that's just oh, that's a quirky little joke oh zany doc feelgood the glam metal superhero come on that's comedy gold shoot me come on you're ruining it for everyone <laughs> I maybe it's just me. I hate the theme. It's just a bunch of unfunny crud superheroes that I don't want to play with. Okay, I think as we often do, we're going to have to just agree to disagree on this one. I thought the theme was actually quite funny, quite entertaining, and that's what drew me to the game in the first place. But let's okay, let's move away from the theme, Ronan. All of those supergroups worked really well, and there was nothing that was overpowered in the game. (sighs) (laughs) 
It's definitely uh, the whole system. The way the whole system works is that a player gets on top, and then it's just a creeping doom of of more than half the game of knowing you're going to lose. Let's just get this done, because when you get an edge, it's very difficult then for for the other person to come back. I know it's only supposed to be a twenty minute game, but when it's twenty minutes and the, the game's decided in the first three or four, usually then that's not very good. I will go for a positive though, Sean. Before we come back to my rest okay, of my comments on okay. it. Yes, at, when you play with the preset super teams, I think that certain combos dominate against other combos. I'm not sure that certain super teams are always going to win every matchup. I just think that they're likely to beat other super teams. So I can't remember the name of it, but this team, you know, Team A will always beat Team B or Team C, but Team D will always beat Team A, sort of thing. So to get the most out of the game, I think you're going to have to do the drafting system whereby you don't stick to the preset teams and you have a draft of the heroes and you start building your own combinations. And when you're seeing what the, your opponent is drafting, you then can draft to respond to what the kind of team they're building. Yeah, if they're building up a certain power in certain areas, then, then you can respond to that. The issue I have with that is that you're going to have to play the game enough to understand all the heroes and understand the implications of a draft to be able to intelligently respond to that drafting so you're going to have to attempt to give some depth to a game that has no depth and there are way way better two-player games out there that i would spend my time playing again and again and again in order to learn and learn the combos and have fun with this is not that game and if it takes that sort of an investment to have fun out of this zany wacky funny comic superhero game I'm not interested. Right. Okay. I will stand and have the fight with you about the theme and the design all day long, but I cannot defend a game that's barely a game. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, it it, it kind of worked on paper when I first had a quick glance at the rule book. I was kind of blinded by the price. It was quite cheap. And I did actually, I'm actually not lying, I'm not just winding my own up, I did actually quite find, I find the, uh, the design quite good. But it just doesn't work. The grid idea is that you've got nine spaces. It's, it's, not, it's not big enough to ever get that checkers stroke draft mechanic into play, where you get this into the three home spaces, unless you completely dominate the game and the person's left with one and they've got to attack or they've got to do something. It's the the preset teams are so so misjudged in terms of there's two that will actually stand up to each other and all the rest are just like you've got you've got no chance. They they do say that there is a, a scale and I think it was the Galactonauts that uh, you played with that were just pointless. They were a pointless group because nobody could ever win with them as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, that didn't work as you said. The whole game just doesn't feel like a game. It just feels like almost like a game of sort of snap or just throwing trading cards or something like that. It's just it's it's not a game. I got your grid point, one hundred percent. I've got that written down. You're supposed to have characters that have melee attacks and ranged attacks. Yeah, right. Got mm-hmm. that. But the grid is three by three. So I only have to move one before I can use my melee against you because you can't be very far away from me. And so their range attacks are just as vulnerable as melee. There's no difference between them, pretty much. 
the spatial aspect is gone. You've you've got characters that can fly, so they can zoom wherever you like in Power City. In those nine spaces, <laughs> three or four of which are going to be taken up by other cards anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, or just sit and shoot you from wherever they are in Power City. Like, like to fly, I had a one. They, they were on the my bottom left. I had a, a walking character, and the bottom right, I had a flying character. And the spaces they could reach were exactly the same. There was no... Why this? Why I don't... And So then I've got my ranged character who I'm trying to, like, you know, get into a sniping position or move... But I can't move away from your big dude who's taking up the middle space, Sean. And he's doing way more damage per turn than any of mine could. And you can only activate one hero a turn, which is immensely frustrating. Uh, uh, so is there... There's not often much point of getting more than one hero out. Some heroes, okay, support each other, but the problem with having those support heroes is that A, they're going to get beaten up straight away because everyone can reach everyone in this tiny grid. And B, so often you use your support power and then the hero you supported is dead anyway because your heroes are just going down like flies. There's no strategy. There's nothing like... I'm not thinking, oh, if I place this cleverly over on the left and this one over on the right, then we can... No! We're all next to each other. It's like throwing people into a phone box and saying, have a fight. And I, well, I see I'm quite a quick fighter. So I don't really want to be in a phone box. No, go in the phone box. No, But then that big dude is just going to win. Yeah, yeah, shut up. Go in and fight. Oh, that's what it feels like. No decisions. <laughs> no tactics. The powers are almost pointless. There are some which are way better than others. The color system is really frustrating. Because I know it's only nine cards, but usually each hero has got maybe one of those sets of cards which you can use. You're only playing one or two a turn. So say I have, uh, I've used my three red cards early in a turn, right? And then I've got a hero. It's the only hero I can get out because you don't have much choice about what's going on once you get into the game. And that needs two red cards to activate. And then for the next four or five turns, I don't get two red cards because I've got to go through all my blues and greens and then I've got to shuffle them up and then I've got to get them out again. And my red cards aren't at the top of the deck next time. And then I'm just sitting there getting beaten up. The the selling point of this card system was it removes the randomness of dice rolling. Yes! And adds it with the crap randomness of rubbish card drawing. Take a breath. Your turn. I think you shouted for about 90 minutes there. You've just got more use out of the game than you had when played it. <laughs> more fun you managed out. to vent some anger. <laughs> yes! I, there's nothing to say about this game other than the amusement on your face when you realised that my super powerful shooty dude could shoot you from wherever you were and you couldn't defend yourself from him. But, what's the point? I can't do anything. Is, is that when I just started cracking open the booze? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> it's just time to give up. Yeah, whatever. So, oh. I think we could probably sum up on this one, right? <laughs> I gave it a 10. <laughs> <laughs> I never need to play it again. I didn't like the theme. It didn't look good. And it didn't play good. And if you want a game for two players that's quick, that has a spatial card playing aspect where you're attacking each other, Go and find the Battle for Hill 218. It is a fantastic game. It does things very cleverly, and it's not this. For me, yeah, I was, <laughs> as I said, I was drawn in. It turned out to be not a game at all. 
I really, really did give it a go. Me and my wife played it. She hated it. I took it to Ronan's. He hated it. And I just sat there and thought, you know what? They're right. You it's didn't not a very play good it game. once either. We really had to go through this. We had to go through it because I just wanted to see where, where the game was. I wanted to find the game that I'd pay for. But anyway, it, it was traded. It was probably my most guilt-ridden, embarrassing <laughs> trade because I got seven wonders for it. <laughs> I just feel guilty for the bloke that I handed it over to because it actually was handed over in person at the UK Games Expo. So whoever that was, if you are one of our listeners, really sorry about that. It's a, it's not a very good game, but I think it does look good. That's Pack of Heroes. My second and last game for our Picking Over the Bones this week is Pagoda. It is a 2014 release and it is a two-player game themed around the building of pagodas on a shared board in the middle of the table and both players are competing to be the most successful builder. It is about adding columns and tiles physically to build the pagodas up so there's a nice 3D aspect to the game. And it's all about playing cards in order to build pagodas to score the most victory points. The designer is RVD Fuller. Now, his only other credited game is Sharfa Shotten. Anyone knows what that is? The game is currently out from Pegasus Spieler. However, there is an AEG English language release coming out soon. This is another one which is language independent. And the Pegasus Spieler version does come with English rules in the box. So how do we begin with the game? Well, there is a board in the middle. And on the board there are six neutral blueprints for pagodas now the blueprints show basically the footprint of where the pagoda is going to go and space for four columns which are literally little wooden columns you're going to be able to add to the board there are five colors of columns in the game and there are five colors of tiles in the game and they share the same colors with each other and their tiles each of the five colors has a tile with the each of the five different columns on so there's 25 pagoda tiles in the game so there are five red tiles one for yellow columns one for blue one for green etc etc hopefully you get the idea of what the tiles look like now on these neutral blueprints you can play your cards to place the first column and whatever color that column is sets the color for the rest of the columns for that particular level and that's going to be true for each level of every pagoda once one column goes on there that is the color it's going to be and once a tile gets placed on top of those columns that will set the color of the columns for the next level the colour of the columns will also set the colour of the tile which must be placed on top of them and this will become a little bit clearer as I explain how we play. Now players start with an open hand of five cards and your open hand is going to be one card of each of the five colours of the columns and tiles and you also have two cards which is hidden and throughout the game you're going to have five open cards and two or more hidden colour cards in your hand. So there's some information there, imperfect though it is, to each other as to what cards you're holding in your hand. So what can you do on your turn? Well, you can build one to three columns. You must build at least one. And you do them simply by 
turning in a card of a colour and adding a column of that colour to the board. Now that column has to either go in a neutral space at the beginning or it has to go in a column space of the colour of the column you're placing. So if I play a green card, I'm going to place a green column and it has to go on a green space somewhere on the board. The second thing you can do is you can add any number of pagoda tiles at any number of lots on the board. So how are you going to be able to place pagoda tiles? Well, the colour of a column sets the colour of the pagoda tile that's going to go on top of it. So you need four columns to create the base for a tile. So let's say we've got four yellow columns. I then have to play a yellow card to place a yellow tile on top of those columns. And that yellow tile can have any color columns on top of it as long as it's available in the stack. So I could place, for example, a yellow tile with red columns on. And then the next level of columns would have to be red from there. And the next tile above that would have to be red. But again, whichever red tile is chosen will set the color of the columns for the next level. When you place columns, you're going to score one point for each level the column is on. So if I place the first ones down on the ground floor, they're going to score me one point. And if I place them on the first floor, two points, second floor, three points for each column, etc. When I place a tile, it always just scores me one victory point. However, if you're playing with a bonus architect board, you're going to get a bonus action. And I will discuss that in a second, these bonus actions. The last thing you can do is place a roof. Now, there can only be four levels of columns in each pagoda, and then you must place a roof tile. The colour of the columns will again set the colour of the roof. However, when you use a roof, you don't use it with that blueprint, the four column side. You flip it over and there'll be a one column side on there. So I could take, let's say I had a fourth level with blue columns. I'll take a blue tile, flip it, and there's just space for one column in the middle. And what I need to do is have the blue card for that tile to be placed as the roof. And then whatever colour of the columns are, I must have two cards of that colour in order to finish it off and place them on top. So let's say for the last roof I chose the blue tile, the red columns, I must play one blue card and then two red cards in order to finish off that pagoda. Once three pagodas are finished, that is the end of the game. So as you can see, you're racing up. Uh, as you build further up, your columns are going to score you more points. But a lot of it is about to do is to control of what color tiles come in next, which will control what color columns are going to be built according to what you've got in your hand. And that imperfect information you have where you can see something of what your opponent has. If you can't do anything useful during the game, on your turn, you can always discard four cards and just build a column and replenish your cards. Now, I did mention there are bonus actions. When you place a pagoda tile, you get two bonus actions for that color if you're playing with the optional architect board. Now, these bonuses are going to allow you to somehow break the rules, be it either take more cards or play more columns or, or just basically exactly the actions I've just described, but do them slightly more efficiently or slightly more powerfully. And each time you lay a tile, it gives you two of those particular actions in a turn. Sean, it's an abstract two-player game, which is about building these pagodas. It has got the physical aspect of building the pagodas, but what are your thoughts on it? Okay, start at the beginning as normal. It looks nice. I do like that, as you said, that 3D representation of the pagodas. They do look cool when they're, when they're building up and when they're finished. It's... It's well put together. It's not the most striking game I've ever seen, but it's nicely put together, lots of colours. So, yeah, definite tick in terms of the design of the game for me. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It is quite Euro-y. You know, it's sort of... You look at it and you go, this is a Euro game. It's got the wooden pieces. It's got the tiles. It's got the beige board. It's got the standard coloured cards that you see in lots of different games. There is definitely a physical pleasure, as I said before, probably said three times now, in building the pagodas themselves and seeing it develop. 
I physically it is a nice game. I enjoy it. It has got a sort of soothing aesthetic to it, which I think fits the gameplay. Uh, do you want to give us some thoughts on the gameplay, Sean? Right. It was this one was quite a difficult one for me. I didn't really enjoy my games of this. Now I had to sit down and scratch my head because it wasn't immediately apparent. Now what I think I put it down to in the end was I felt that in general the cards were dictating what I was doing, and there were times when I felt like I was continually just chancing my arm to get the cards I wanted, and and they just, and sometimes they just weren't falling for me, or other times in other games they were just falling perfectly, and I had didn't really have much decisions to make in terms of what colour to go for. I felt like that it's easy when one person goes into a downward spiral and they just can't get their cards out. It's quite easy for the other person to block them off. I know that there is this option just to get rid of four cards and bring bring four new ones into, but it's, it's a waste of a turn and the other person can still see what the four, what's sitting in front of you and what colours you kind of going to be going for in your next turn. And I felt it was a bit easy to block people off. And I thought once you're kind of behind, it's, it's difficult for the other person to come back. I think there's definitely a balance to be struck between taking the points and scoring the points and then dictating how the pagoda is going to be built. There are times when you definitely want to avoid going for the obvious points and slapping down those third and fourth level columns and then actually taking and making sure you dictate what tile goes on uh, on a second level, for example, so that you know that from the cards you've got, you're going to be able to play them because obviously the more columns you can get out, the more tiles you can get out, the more you're going to cycle your cards and you're going to be able to have more options as you go. It's, it's not you know a big strategy thing, but the ability to lay those tiles is hugely important. They only score you one point, but if, uh, you know, as you say, if I can look over and see you've got no greens and I know I've got three greens, I'm going to be looking to get a tile out that's got green columns on. And, that, that balance of scoring points and dictating how the building's going to be built, I find it really interesting. And sometimes you can screw yourself over. You can sell it down for blue columns and only have one blue card and then not get a blue card for the next five minutes. I don't mind it so much because I, I don't think it's a long enough game to get too worried about it. It doesn't take much longer than half an hour. So I, I think the chance in your arm, it's not so bad because you, you're sort of taking a risk. You're thinking, right... Is it worth doing that? I'm, I'm giving up some points over there. I know that he's going to be able to stick in uh, those yellow columns and, and get a couple of three-point columns over there. But I think, is it more important to dictate over here so that I can get rid of some of these cruddy cards and start getting some better cards out? I think that's the only that's the only depth to the game, is kind of making that decision of when to risk-take and when not. Yeah, and uh, maybe that's wherein lies my sort of problem with it, is that it's kind of all a risk-take. You, you've got... You've got... The, the cards are going to dictate to you effectively what you're going to start with and what colours you're going to be able to place down. There's going to be times when you're going to hold back because you don't want to get to the point where the other person could finish that, that level or top off the pagoda. But there's mostly you're going to play the cards you've got and if you see that the other person doesn't have a, a, an alarming amount of a certain colour, you're going to try and edge the pagodas towards those colours. And that's when I feel like it's, it's difficult for the other person to come back. Now, but, yeah, it, it swings in roundabouts, as we say. There's, you're going to get times when all your cards just come in and you're able to dictate the game, and you're going to get times when your cards necessarily just don't. You're not, you're not going to get a run of luck with the cards. That kind of made me feel a bit meh about the game. And 
one aspect I did like was the additional architect board. But again, I felt like you're kind of dictated by the cards what colours you go for. Now, okay, fair enough. You've got to make the best use of what you're given. But you can't really say, oh, I'd really like yellow, so I'm going to I'm gonna try and get yellow cards because you don't know if you're going to get yellow cards. So the yellow power, you might be waiting all day for it. Well, we definitely differ on the architect board. I think it's something you have to be very careful with. Usually in games, when they say, once you know the game, throw this in, or it's the advanced variant or what have you, I'll almost always play with that variant first, right? Because you know that it's, it's, once you play a load of games, it's not going to be that difficult, I think, usually to pick up. The architect board in this, though, I think adds to a game if you're playing with play, two players of a similar skill level. But if you're playing against someone and you know the game a bit better or maybe you're just better at this sort of an abstract game or this particular game with the other person, when you add in the architect board, it actually adds to a cascade effect. Because if you get the tiles out, you're both dictating where the game's going, you're dictating what colours are useful, and then you're getting bonus actions for, for dictating where it goes. And if you can manipulate and constantly get the tiles out and play better than the other person, it actually helps you run away. And that's when you're going to start getting crazy score differences. So that architect board, I would be very careful with. If I'm playing against someone that I, I know knows the game or you that I don't mind giving a good beating to or taking a good beating from, fine. If I was teaching it to someone new, I, this is one of those games where I'd say, do you know what, don't use the advanced variant. Let's teach without it because it generally tends to keep the game a little bit closer. So I'm not sure about the architect board. I will tell you one thing, though, that I think appeals for this as a, as a two-player game is that it doesn't feel vicious. In a lot of two-player games, because they're zero-sum or they're about conflict or they're about area control or you're directly trying to do something against the other person and sometimes it feels a little bit mean, a little bit conflicty. This one, I like it. And I was talking about the relaxing aesthetic to it and the relaxing feel to it. Even if I'm not doing as well, I don't feel it's directly the result of the other person. I don't feel like I'm being attacked. I just feel like they're playing well. Sean? Yeah, I agree with you. Yes, it doesn't feel like you're being attacked. Just feel, yeah, exactly. It feels like the other person is just building the pagoda as best they can, and it's up to you to try and do as best as you can. But you have admitted that you practically you did bully me in that first game running when you did introduce the architect board straight off the bat in my first game. Yeah, but I just wanted to see you cry <laughs> and cry. I did. It was good. <laughs> I saved some of your tears. I'm going to give my final thoughts on this now. As I said, it was difficult for me because I didn't really enjoy the games of this. Uh, possibly the first game when me and Ronan played it because he bullied me. But subsequent games, I just didn't feel it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any real theme, but I don't think it's supposed to. But I just felt like it was an exercise in matching colours with a little bit of screwage and some random thrown in. It's okay. I wouldn't run a mile if someone asked to play the game with me but I wouldn't necessarily seek out a game of it I think you're wrong I think this is a really nice little balance between random and strategy I think it's got simple rules it's got an appeal to it it's very quick to teach people enjoy the physical aspect of it I think it's a good little two-player game. Even if it is slightly abstract, I think that you can play it with players who might sometimes react a little too emotionally to more conflict-heavy games, shall we say. It's one in which you can keep the peace. I think it's a game which you can learn together and get better with together, but no one can be perfect at because of that slightly random thing and the fact the cards are going to come out and you can't always be perfect at it. 
I think it's a nice little addition to the, the two-player field. And I, again, it's another game I recommend giving it a go. I, I don't recommend it as strongly as Helios or it's not going to give you the big play experience of Dark Dark Darkest. It's definitely better than Pack of Heroes, though. And, and if you see it, give it a go. That's Pagoda. So those are our thoughts on Dark Dark Darkest, Helios, Pack of Heroes and Pagoda. We thank you so much for listening to us again in this episode 26. And you can always join in our thoughts on the internet at the following. Sean. You can email us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at GamePitPodcast. And of course, as always, we can be found on 2d6.org along with a whole host of gaming goodness. And we're very proud members of the Dice Tower Network with the very best in gaming podcasts. And don't forget, as Ronan said, that we will be present at LunCon 3, the World Science Fiction Convention in London this, this August. Yeah, do come along and see us at the Games Tent. Thank you, and we'll catch you next time. Music by Aaron.